Hello, and welcome to the Bregman Leadership Podcast. I'm Peter Bregman, and I believe that the best leaders don't try to do it alone. As the CEO of Bregman Partners, my mission for over 30 years and the mission of this podcast is to help successful people like you close your leadership gaps, grow as leaders, and inspire your team, inspire all the people around you to get great results. Joining us as our guest on the podcast today is Wayne Jonas. He is a medical doctor. He's a widely published research science. He's a practicing family physician, and he's a professor of medicine at Georgetown University and at the Uniform Services University of the Health Sciences. He is a retired lieutenant colonel in the medical corps of the United States Army. He was the director of the Office of Alternative Medicine at the National Institutes of Health from 95 to 99. We led the World Health Organization's Collaborative Center for Traditional Medicine. He's worked with Kaiser Permanente, which I just discovered, and he's obviously well-positioned to talk to us about um, health and the organizations and the organizational element of health uh, in, in our society. He's an unusual uh, guest, and his book, which we're going to be talking about today, How Healing Works get well and stay well using your hidden power to heal, that this book is an unusual book for this podcast. This podcast is a podcast about leadership and organizations and how to be courageous and powerful in your ability to lead effectively in a variety of situations. And here's the thing. I picked up this book because I uh, was stricken with shingles and uh, someone had sent it to me. My actually agent had sent it to me because we share the same agent. And I picked it up and I started looking at it and I, and I looked at it for personal reasons. But what I realized is this is an important voice and Wayne's voice is an important voice in the way we think about healthy organizations. And you'll see why in a minute. But I think most great ideas and most sort of innovation doesn't come from inventing something out of the ether, but it comes from looking at research and and well-constituted ideas in one area of life and then applying it to another area of life. And that's what I want to do here. I want to look at how the body heals itself and how a healthy body looks and feels and what that means in terms of a healthy organization and what that might inform, how that might inform leaders about what we need to do if we want to create not only environments that are healthy for the people who work there, but also healthy, vibrant organizations themselves. The organization is an organism. It, it's kind of a living, breathing thing in and of itself. So what can we learn about the body and health and how can science inform how we think about organizations in which we operate. And I'm very much looking forward to this conversation. Wayne, welcome to the Bregman Leadership Podcast. Thank you, Peter. It's a great pleasure to be here. And uh, you've really framed the issues very nicely. Uh, you know, organizations are organisms in many senses. Uh, they are made up of people. And if the people aren't thriving and if the environment uh, that the organization has created around them doesn't allow them to do that, doesn't facilitate that process, then neither the individuals nor the organization can thrive no matter what they do. And so that's that's a key issue. And uh, I think, you know, if you wanted to sum it up in one word, uh, both people and organizations are ecosystems. They're complex ecosystems 
They have multiple dimensions, but not infinite dimensions. So it's it's you can get your hands around it. And if you treat it like an ecosystem rather than uh, you know a mechanical device that you can just pull one thing out and put another part in, then they will do better uh, than if you just take an approach uh, thinking that they're cars, for example, which they're not. And so taking a more holistic approach that addresses the core issues of what allows people to flourish uh, is really what this book is about. And I learned this the hard way, actually. I mean, I was trained in a conventional reductionistic pills and procedure scientific uh, approach in uh, Western medicine. I applied it for many years. Uh, and then I realized that what I was doing was actually uh, having a relatively small impact on the actual health of my patients. Uh, and that most of what produced health and healing came from outside of the office, it came outside of the hospital, it came outside of the clinical visit, uh, and it had to do with this ecosystem that people lived in. And when I went around the world, uh, as, you, as you pointed out, with the World Health Organization, the National Institutes of Health, uh, and as a military physician, uh, I realized that uh, the Western system was not the only one that needed to pay attention to the core components, that, uh, that in fact, the best systems that work to keep people healthy and flourishing uh, were systems that did take a whole person holistic approach. And so this book describes that journey, how I learned that, and it describes uh, sort of what it looks like. And I give examples from uh, all kinds of systems from all over the world. And then at the end, what I try to do is give some uh, practical, simple tools for both organizations and individuals to make that happen in their life. So there's this underlying idea that says this reductionist view of solving a problem, meaning, you know, I have a problem with a pain in my elbow, so let's fix the pain in my elbow, uh, ignores the systemic issues that might have led to the pain in my elbow. And that in reality, and I might, I might be reductionist in the way I'm thinking about this, but I'm just, I'm, I'm testing this with you, that to understand the whole system helps me to figure out really why there's an ill in one particular part of the system. And that it's, you know, you don't just sort of target the one problem and try to fix that one problem in an isolated reductionist way. Yes, I think that's correct. Now, uh, sometimes it's extremely useful to fix the one problem in a reductionist way. That's when it is one problem, <laughs> okay? If you break your leg, if you're having an acute heart attack where you you know, need to kind of stop your heart from getting clogged up, or if you've got a tumor, or if you have an infection where we know the organism is killing you and you need to kill it, uh, you know, or a cancer or something like that, then the reductionistic approach works extremely well. And 100 years ago, 150 years ago, that's what was killing people. Killing People were being uh, killed from uh, acute diseases, from the consequences of trauma, uh, and from things that we eventually found out what was causing them. And we built a wonderful system for dealing with those on an acute basis. So we're extremely good at saving people's lives, replacing parts, and stopping infections when we can find the, the underlying infection. Uh, but that's, and, and actually the success of that has led to a shift in the kinds of illnesses that we now experience, which are chronic, behavioral, and mostly lifestyle-based illnesses. And those chronic illnesses are complex, 
multifactorial and the reductionistic approach does not work. And we see that now in our system every day, we're attempting to apply that. And that's uh, why our costs are going through the roof and our outcomes in, uh, in the West, especially where that system is uh, uh, applied inappropriately, the outcomes are getting worse and the satisfaction with those systems is going down and we just can't afford it anymore. So let me actually apply this to organizations here for a second, because I, I think, you know, when I think about uh, an ill in an organization, I don't fully know that I agree with this, but there seems to be a lot of research that says that people are disengaged, for example, in organizations. We need to engage them. And then there's a lot of research that says, okay, so we need to create more meaning. And we know that meaning is important, like meaning and purpose is important. So then there's, you know, there's an effort to say, okay, so let's make sure that everybody, you know, has a purpose in what they're doing and they create meaning. And there's something about that that still feels reductionist because it's sort of there might be a million things happening in the organization that's making people disengaged and landing on a solution of trying to create meaning in a particular arena seems like maybe it won't capture the full picture of what's making that organization less healthy. I don't even know if I'm framing the question exactly right, but does it make sense to you? Well, uh, we are meaning-making machines. Human beings uh, constantly, uh, whether they want to or not, are constantly trying to make rhyme or reason out of why things happen to them, why they're here, uh, you know, what they're trying to do in life. Uh, and that is about meaning. It's about meaning and purpose. And there's now extensive research showing that if you find that for yourself, you will do well, you will live longer, you'll function better, you'll contribute more to society. Uh, that I call that more sort of the existential question. It's more about the mind and the spirit uh, than it is anything else. Uh, that doesn't mean everything is the same for everybody. Everybody has to, you know, uh, so meaning, uh, if, you know. So if I'm the leader of an organization and I say, okay, I'm gonna create a compelling purpose under which we all operate, that I'm I'm trying to solve a problem that really needs to be solved by, you know, more holistically by individuals themselves, that they have to create their own meaning and that has to be, I would imagine, a hundred percent believable and persuasive to them that 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 they really are driven and motivated by that meaning. Am I thinking about that? That's this right? correct. That's correct. And and we see this in healthcare all the time. We call it person-centered care. It's been, uh, uh, there's been National Academy of Medicine reports written about it. Uh, there's, uh, you know, organizations attempting to deliver it. Uh, it's, and, and what happens is that though, if you don't listen to what the patient tells you, for example, in my office, if I don't ask them what matters to them, and I ask only what is the matter with them, and then I try to fix it, then if what I'm trying to do in a healthcare setting doesn't connect with why they're here in life, what really matters to them, then we have what's called a compliance problem, right? <laughs> okay, they're not particularly interested in engaging in my suggestions. Uh, and it's the same way within a, a work organization. And I mean, the, somehow the, the individual has to get fulfillment from coming in every day and engaging with other people in a way that's going to help the overall organization. Now, sometimes it is the mission of the organization that drives people. So I was in the military for 20 years and the people that went into the military, the mission of defending the country was compelling to them and they felt they were really contributing. 
but even more than that, uh, what kept people motivated to get up every day and go into danger's way was the fact that they were with friends, buddies, companions, people that they just bonded with, they loved. And so the social environment is that second dimension of a human being that everybody needs. The spiritual component, the spiritual and mental component, that meaning component is key. You have to have that. But the social environment is the glue that surrounds that, that allows people to every single day come in and say, I actually like what I'm doing here because I like the people I work with, uh, that they're supportive, uh, that they reinforce the fact that what we're doing together is uh, meaningful. And that keeps me engaged beyond even the more existential purpose. And then, of course, you can't do that if you're in a behavioral environment that pounds you down, right? Uh, and so that's the third dimension of this area or in a physical environment that's toxic. <laughs> and that's the fourth dimension. Uh, and in my book, I outline those four dimensions of a human being. Uh, and we have to pay attention to all those. If we pay attention and optimize all of those, then we have an optimal healing environment from the inner to the outer. Uh, and people will flourish regardless of the organization that they're in. So maybe articulate for us if I'm a leader and I'm wanting to create an environment that is a healthy environment and an organization that's a healthy organization that not only creates a container for people to do their best work, but also literally helps, you know, it's the op everybody talks about toxic environments. This would be a healing environment, right? The opposite of a toxic environment, which is an organization that has a profit motive and that's out there to sort of achieve something in the world. And it is a healing environment for people. What does that paint that picture for us? What could that look like? So actually, we developed a whole series of models when I ran a, a research organization called the Sanueli Institute for 15 years called optimal healing environments. It was actually called that. It took the same four dimensions that I just described are part of an individual that flourishes, that has to be part of an individual's life and flourishes, and it created a measurement system around that. Uh, this was designed specifically for organizations to take into their setting and to do a biopsy of was the physical, the behavioral, the social and emotional, and the existential or the spiritual uh, and mental, were they in fact addressing those in a way that was uh, creating flourishing for individuals? It's sort of like uh, Maslow's hierarchy of needs, uh, but this was a, a, a ball, a network of, of optimal flourishing component, if you will, in those areas. And there was a whole set of metrics. Actually, if you look at the website of the, of the institute I used to run, Samueli Institute, there's a whole set of tools and uh, metrics on that called optimal healing environment uh, environments. And we worked with organizations to go in, do a biopsy of their organization, and then had specific examples of how they could then implement uh, that in a whole systems framework and create that kind of flourishing with examples of organizations that were doing that. And, you know, the interesting thing, Peter, is that when they did that, that actually was one of the strongest correlates with profits in the organization because people then were engaged. They liked being there and they thought through and solved troubles collectively. 
and shared with each other in a collective way uh, and didn't undermine and uh, and uh, interfere with the efficiency of the organization. And so, in fact, their costs were less and their profits were better. And these are the same characteristics of, of, of organizations uh, that you see in uh, meaning-centered uh, you know, organizations and good-to-great components, and a lot of studies illustrate this. But it's a framework that takes what does it take to be a human flourishing being and saying, let's implement that, implement that in our organization? Could you give us an example of an organization and describe the elements of it or what it looks like or what, you know, so that we can really get concrete about, you know, what this organization that is, you know, both a flourishing environment and that people, you know, I, I often feel like the, the bar is generally to not be toxic. Like people complain about toxic environments and then they talk about an environment, you know, like not being toxic, but that's too low a bar. It's like, what is a flourishing environment? An environment that's actually not just doing, not, not just not doing damage, but actually healing. Like the idea right. of a healing environment as an organization that drives profits is really enticing. So I wonder if you could paint a picture for us as to, you know, an example of one that you've seen and what they do that creates that kind of a healing, holistic environment where one part is really thinking about the whole uh, just as every other part is. Yeah, so we wrote several books on this. We, we worked mostly with healthcare organizations, uh, but specifically on the organizational culture in those areas. And we wrote several books on this. Uh, that you know, I can uh, put on the, give you to you to send to put on your website. Sure. Uh, some of them are on my website, etc. But let me give you an example. Uh, the 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 very things that people feel good about in their own personal health. Let's take the 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 physical environment, sunlight, exposure to nature. Uh, um, are all key parts of uh, health and human flourishing. So the physical environment should look at that noise. Just reducing the amount of noise in the environment can actually improve the sense of productivity and the actual productivity within the environment. The behavioral environment is very important. If a person is uh, sitting around and is not moving all day, <laughs> then they're going to get, you know, they're not going to function. We're not made to sit around and move all day. So you're on a standing desk. I was just on a standing desk, actually on a treadmill desk to, to allow to walk. Uh, built into the environment was uh, was the need to 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 move. Stress and stress management, the social and emotional environment, very very important. Uh, we did a, um, uh, a, a, a an intervention where we evaluated a large hospital system in a military environment in terms of what were the components, and stress was a huge component of that. And in fact, when the leaders of that organization began to allow for um, uh, stress breaks, began to put in places where people could actually relax and begin to talk. When they started to put on their own doors, I'm taking a meditation break, please do not disturb. And they turned their phones off for 15 to 20 minutes every day. The whole organization began to change. There began to be dialogue about that and the stress level dropped. In the, uh, in the organization, uh, focus and concentration improved and they were more productive in those areas. Increasing and investing in the ability to bond socially in non-work ways has tremendous payoff in these areas. 
And uh, there's actually been good research on this. They've shown uh, that as long as you design it in a holistic way, and the RAND Corporation actually studied this extensively, uh, for every dollar you invest in creating an, a, a, a healing environment, a, a flourishing environment, uh, you get $3 back in ROI and return on investment from that. So you've already you know, tripled uh, your, uh, uh, your uh, savings just by investing in that kind of a framework and a kind of an approach. And what is the role of the leaders in that and the leadership behavior? So the leader is crucial for this. And the lessons that we have uh, found over the years in working with many organizations is that if the leader is taking care of themselves, in other words, if they're engaged in their own healing environment, if they're paying attention to the physical environment they're in, to the stress environment they create, to their family and work-life balance, so to speak, uh, and to their own contribution that they're making back to society as a whole through their work, not just towards their profit, but are they giving back to society in a way where others are benefiting? They're, are they doing good? Okay. If they pay attention to that in their own personal life, that has the biggest influence on the entire organization than probably anything you do. Now, you can't organize, you can't, you can't ignore whether other people have the opportunity to do that. If they, if they live in unsafe communities, if they live in a food desert and they can't get, it, they can't get good food or they can't get any food, they're not going to flourish even if, even if you're taking care of yourself individually. But assuming that what you're providing for yourself is something you want for all of your employees, you still got to do it for yourself. You can't simply talk the walk and not walk the talk. You know, you say something there on page 92, you say something that I really love. You say, so here's the irony of healing that makes it different than curing. The very wound from which we suffer induces the process of healing. To acknowledge and enter that wounding opens the path to wholeness. The priest, writer, and spiritual teacher Henry Nouwen called this the wounded healer, whereby a person by accepting and then embracing the fact that he's flawed and wounded can find a deep peace and joy. He called us, he called this the experience of being beloved, fully valuing yourself in one's life just as they are. I feel like this is connected to what you're saying. This has implications for us all individually in terms of accepting feedback and criticism with openness, a willingness to not be perfect, a willingness to be vulnerable and see the flaws in ourselves that allows us to then go into wholeness. Uh, and, and it has, it has a, uh, it has something to say about the sort of health of organizations in general. And I'm wondering what your thoughts are about this and also how leaders can help this process along. Yeah. You know, uh, I'm glad you wrote that passage. It's one of my favorites. That's why I put it in there. And I'm glad you picked it out. Uh, you know, everybody knows this, okay? <laughs> everybody knows that there is nobody that's perfect. Everybody knows that you know, you got problems, you, you get illness, you have family issues, you've got struggles in your life, some more than others. Everybody knows that, you know, ultimately, you know, you've got to, you know, dress or undress yourself or, you know, you, you wipe your own behind, okay, uh, in those areas. That's being human. And to the extent that you can respect and acknowledge the core humanity of everybody, that I'm like you, that you're like me, and I realize that you have some of the same needs that I have in order to flourish, 
Now you have um, humility, and now you have vulnerability, and now you have respect. And that's what allows people to follow you as a leader. If you have those characteristics, people will come to the table. And as we've, and I've, as I've seen in the military, and the military has shown, uh, people will literally die for you <laughs> if there's somebody that they feel trusted that you'll take care of them, they will take care of you. And those characteristics, exposing your own wounds and saying, I'm working on these things and I realize it's difficult to, to, uh, uh, to make uh, you know, the productivity part work when, uh, forgive me, crap happens <laughs> and I need a time to actually, uh, um, you know, uh, heal from that process. And so I'm going to allow that to happen in the organization that, that I run because I know it happens to everybody. That kind of trust and vulnerability and authenticity is what brings people to the table and it what creates a fundamental bond at the core human level. Uh, and in fact, simply saying that even to yourself, confessing that you have wounds and injuries in itself is healing. I write in my book about extensive studies on simply journaling about traumatic, in, uh, uh, traumatic events that have occurred in the past. And, you know, for some, it, it may seem trivial, and, uh, but if it wounded you as a child, for example, and you've never dealt with it, you've had an adverse child experience, and you've never reconciled that, simply writing about that will have a therapeutic effect. James Pennebaker and others have done extensive work on this. A single episode of therapeutic writing about something that's deeply uh, harmful for you, a wound that you now acknowledge is really an important part of you, improves pain, it improves the immune system, it improves lung function if you're asthmatic, uh, it reduces healthcare costs, and it improves productivity. And it's amazing because I, I think about that and then I, I translate it to organizations and I think, you know, when organizations repress or try to avoid admitting the wounds that they have, the challenges that they've faced, the mistakes that they've made, then that's the opposite, right? That's creating toxicity in the organism it we is. call an organization. And when they are able to admit the faults and the challenges that they've made and where they've gone wrong as an organization that, you know, when they even write about it or when they can be public about it, that it, it, it creates the healing in the organization that's necessary for that organization itself to learn from it and to move on and to function fully. So it's, it's really powerful. So much of what you write uh, around a body is so connected to the organization and the organization as an organism that it's really, really powerful. And there's so much great stuff in this book that we haven't had a chance to talk about the, you, you, you've looked at really interesting research about placebos. I'm gonna, just going to tickle the listeners that there's this really interesting rabbit experiment about what makes the difference between healthy rabbits and not healthy rabbits. And, and it, uh, you know, without spoiling it, it, uh, you know, it's, it's not just about the food that they take in and it, it's, right. uh, it's got a lot to do with the sort of external environment and, and how supportive it is. And so there's a tremendous no amount of really great information that's personally interesting to people who care about their own health. And it's also very, it's organizationally interesting in terms of, you know, how we think about organizations that flourish and those that end up being toxic. I won't reveal the results of the rabbit experiment. They'll have to read the book to get that. Uh, but I will tell you that uh, what it talks about is love. 
and the importance of love. And we now know that loneliness is probably more important than your cholesterol for the likelihood that you're gonna die of heart disease. And at least as, as, uh, as significant as smoking a half a pack of cigarettes a day. And yet your doctor t measures your cholesterol, tells you to stop smoking. Do they ask you if you have a supportive social environment? Ask yourself that and then look at the book. There's some tools and on my website, there's also additional tools uh, to make that uh, real in your life. I love it. The book is How Healing Works, Get Well and Stay Well Using Your Hidden Power to Heal. It's even so much more than that promise, which is rare for a book. Uh, Wayne Jonas, thank you so much for being on the Bregman Leadership Podcast. Thank you, Peter. Thanks for listening. Here's what I've learned from working with some of the most successful leaders of the most successful companies. Every leader, every team, and every organization has a leadership gap. If you want to become a leader who inspires your team to get things done, then you've got to start by raising the level of your leadership abilities. You can start by taking our free leadership gap assessment at www.bregmanpartners.com forward slash quiz. Then dive deeper with a copy of my latest book, Leading with Emotional Courage. For more ways to become a truly great leader, check out our online offerings, in-person workshops and events, and my articles at www.bregmanpartners.com. Again, thanks so much for joining me today, and thanks to Claire Marshall for producing this episode. Be sure to subscribe so you don't miss an episode.